This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Coming up, it's San Luis Obispo Friends of the Library's 45th Anniversary Book Sale. Certain genres of books sell much better than others. History is a huge one that sells. Religious and spirituality is a huge one that sells. Children's books, any type of children's books. Also, on Playing with Food, Father Ian has fun with fresh local pasta. It's a very simple process. We use a single ingredient, organic durum semolina flour, and pure water. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 26th. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Peace, Love, and Pets. This is Peace, Love, and Pets. I'm Robin with Woods Humane Society. February brings us a little closer to spring, which brings us also closer to kitten season. That sounds like the best season ever if you are a cat lover, but for us who work with homeless animals, it is quite daunting. Kitten season around our area is mostly year-round these days, but there is a big increase during spring and summer of unplanned litters being born. These baby kittens have no home, no shelter, no medical care, and have a rough road ahead of them. So my guest today, Damon Watkins with Cal Poly Cat Program, is going to tell us a little bit more about their amazing program right on the campus of Cal Poly. What a wonderful program that was started in 1992 as a senior project to help solve the problem of rising cat population at Cal Poly. Their mission is to provide a safe and nurturing environment for sanctuary surrendered, stray, and rehabilitated feral cats and kittens while they wait for loving new homes. Through their ongoing trap, neuter, and return program, they help maintain the feral cat population in San Luis Obispo County. Damon has had the privilege of serving as the Board of Finance and Operations for Cal Poly Center for Innovations and Entrepreneurship. Last summer, he found himself drawn to the Cal Poly Cat Program out of a desire to contribute to our community. Welcome, Damon and Cal Poly Cats. Thank you very much for having me today. I love that it got started as a senior project. The shelter is located directly on the campus. It's very convenient for the students and some of the staff members to be able to attend it and get to it while still going to class. I think it's important to remember that these students, while donating their time to the shelter, are still going to school full-time, but choose to spend their spare time taking care of our four-legged furry friends. Maybe Um, some three-legged once in a while, right? We (laughs) do tend to have some three-legged ones that make their way through. Um, The program, like you said, was started about 30 years ago as a senior project and has just grown over the years, managed mainly by Sharon Dobson, who retired recently in June. I believe last year we were able to rehouse close to almost 200 cats. We currently have almost 100 cats in foster, and we're always looking for volunteer help. It is run strictly by students and volunteers, um, and everything that we expense each month is fundraised by the students themselves directly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those volunteer opportunities. What are some of the things that people could expect to do? And let's differentiate, because I think a lot of people are surprised that you also do take volunteers and fosters from the community. It's great that students are involved, but you can't really necessarily do it year-round without the help of the community. Absolutely. Our community volunteers are, in many ways, the lifeline to what we do, with our students having full-time classes and going home at summer and winter breaks. We lean heavily on our community members. Um, our community members can sign up at our Cal Poly 
hollycatprogram.org. Um, we have three shifts a day that are available to these particular volunteers when they choose to come in, and they can range from anything from doing uh, paperwork requirements that we need to have to go ahead and bring these cats into the shelter, or things like cleaning, changing litter, the basic requirements of what it takes to run a shelter. Um, we're always looking for support in these areas, and it's very easy to sign up. You're not required to serve multiple shifts. If you just want to sign up to try it out for a time, come meet the cats, say hi, clean a couple of cages, and just hang out, that's absolutely up to you as well. We just like to let everyone know that they're more than welcome to just come and check out the shelter if they wish to. And if they are interested and they want to come back, is it a weekly shift that you're normally looking for? Traditionally, we do a weekly shift that we ask them to sign up for. Each shift is two hours long, but there's no further commitment required if you don't have the time. Again, we try to make it as flexible as possible, but it is a very easy process to, to go ahead and sign up. You get to pet some cute you kitties, get to right? pet a whole bunch of cute kitties. This is true. I know that's not all volunteers do, but it is part of it's the highlight. It's an important highlight. part of what volunteers do, if you ask me. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about fostering opportunities. Absolutely. I, of course, am aware of how much fosters do and quite literally save lives. We at Every the shelters day. cannot take in sometimes those two-day-old, those eight-day-old, those one-month-old kitties. Um, so if we weren't for safe, loving foster homes, I know some of these sweet lives would not be able to make it. So let's talk about fostering opportunities, what that looks like through your sure. program. Our fosters are a key aspect of us having the ability to, you know, find these cats new homes. The shelter itself can only hold so many cats. So the more cats that we can actually foster out to loving homes while we look for individuals to adopt them, um, the more cats that we can actually save in our community. And luckily, we have a very strong base of fosters out there. We're always looking for new ones. We take care of all the expenses from food to litter to pet visits to any associated medication. And so the only thing we ask is we're looking for homes that are willing to take care of these cats while we find them more permanent homes. We're absolutely willing to accommodate whatever the fosters are willing to do for us. The need is always there, whether it be kittens, um, cats that are a little older, or even individuals looking just to take care of an elderly cat. We do come across those. We're completely open to being accommodating to whatever the fosters need. Yeah, I love that. So kittens is a great experience for families, for even single students maybe to have a little extra time to devote to giving that love and getting that love back. But also those adult cats, those senior cats, maybe stressed out or going through medical challenges. It's it's really beneficial to have them in a less stressful home environment. So it sounds like all options are on the table with you guys. Absolutely. All options. We just want to find them loving homes where they can be until we find them more permanent positions and that's always been our focus. Let me know how adoptions work with you guys. Well the easiest place to start is at calpolycatprogram.org. All our animals are posted on Pet Finder. Uh, it's updated weekly. We make ourselves available to anyone that either wants to see the shelter or see any cat pretty much 24-7. Uh, the whole idea behind what we do is to put cats in homes with loving individuals, and the sooner we can bring those two worlds together, that is always our focus point. So reach out to us, contact us through our website, through Facebook or Instagram, and we'd love to schedule a time to meet with you and one of our furry friends. And I'm assuming you have some um, great stories about some of your 
adoptable animals. So most of the volunteers, to a large degree, foster multiple cats (laughs) at different times. I currently have a wonderful little kitty named Rocco. Rocco is one of our great little stories of our cats that made its way through the shelter. We really wasn't in good condition when we got him, but from a medical standpoint, we got him squared away, got his diet, and he is doing really well and up for adoption. Kiwi is one of our mascot cats. Um, He's actually a sanctuary cat. Kiwi has been with us close to 10 years now, I believe. Kiwi was initially shot by a BB gun Mm -hmm. in his back, and it's created some medical issues for him. Um, He unfortunately doesn't have control of his bowels, which is why he's not necessarily ideal for adoption. Mm -hmm. So he is actually our sanctuary cat and our mascot. Unfortunately, Kiwi is going through chemotherapy right now. He has cancer, and so we are looking to raise funds to support Kiwi. And again, you can gladly go ahead and go to our calpolycatprogram.org to donate in any way you see fit, or even donate goods associated with the shelter. We're always looking for things like blankets, food, cat litter, toys. Um, Again, all donations are welcome. And again, we are a nonprofit. I love that. Well, I have to say my dad was a kiwi farmer, one of the first in California. We are wishing the best for sweet kiwi. What a handsome boy. And he is lucky to have you guys taking such great care of him. Did he just get diagnosed with the cancer? Is that a new treatment? Just a Recently, and he is currently doing chemotherapy three times a week. Oh, wow. So, you know. All right. We're with you, Kiwi. You, you got Absolutely. this. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods Humane Society. And my guest today on Peace, Love, and Pets is Damon Watkins with Cal Poly Cat Program. All right. Let's do it, Damon. Let's talk kitten season. Kitten season. <laughs> it's kind of like the F word, but the K word. Um, we love kittens. They're cute as could be. Who doesn't love the kitten cuteness. But as I said before, there are just far, far too many being born without homes. And we are trying to be responsible. We want people to spay and neuter. We want these kitties to be born into loving homes. Again, being in California, we pretty much see kittens year round, but we definitely are starting to see um, more pregnant moms coming in and um, Fortunately, that means babies are coming very soon, which gives us a little a little panic um, this time of year. Uh, this month alone, I believe we've already just brought in 15 kittens, um, so it has just started. Um, we actually serve the entire county and actually outside the county if necessary. Um, ideally, we work with either individuals or other shelters that are looking to house these kittens, but mostly we actually gain access to them through our community members. Uh, a lot of the cats that we have are either strays or barn cats that we end up getting in and attempting to find them either uh, loving homes or provide them an environment where they can be Uh, feel more comfortable and then find them loving homes. it is always a challenge when it comes to kitty season and finding homes for all the kittens that come in. It goes back to our volunteers and our fosters, to be quite honest with you. We simply get to a point where we can't take any more kittens in without the support of the fosters, and that just highlights how important they are for our program. And so at this time of the year, when we know that we're going to have an influx of these kittens, it's even more important for us to find the fosters that are willing to take care and the extra work that comes along with having a little kitten in the house. Well, worth the extra work and great social media content as well then they tend to network them themselves maybe some friends neighbors family and then you still get to kind of stay a little bit involved in their life maybe you become their cat sitter or you get to see pictures and updates so um, that's something I think people are scared about fostering is it's hard to say goodbye I 
cry every day at Woods. I fall in love and then I watch them walk out the front doors, hopefully into their new life. And it's bittersweet always. But you know what? The next animal takes that spot and needs that help. So that's kind of kind of what I think about fostering. It's it's such a beautiful gift um, to to give back and share your time. And it's a short term commitment, like you said. So we are gearing up for our kitten season. So let's uh, let's get you some new fosters, possibly. I know Woods has worked with you guys for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we share resources at times. We put our brains together to help more more people and more cats in our community, and also do some spay and neuter for you guys. So we love our partners. We do. Most certainly. In fact, you're the, one of the primary reasons that we are able to even have a TNR program. Our ability to work with was to facilitate getting these animals neutered for minimal cost. Um, we have amazing students that are going out after class at night, trapping these cats, finding, bring them back, getting them spayed or neutered, getting their vaccines, getting them chipped. I think people like us in the business, we say TNR quite a bit. Oh, right. So let's talk about what that actually means. People, uh, I think, still are a little confused on what a community cat is, what a feral cat is, what TNR is. So why don't you share a little bit more details about that? Sure. So our trap and release program um, is basically just that. We get reached out by community members that may have cats on their property that are um, not feral per se, um, but just not engaging with humans. We want to make sure that they're spayed or neutered to ensure that we don't have an overpopulation of cats in our local community, which is a real issue. And our students actually go out, trap these animals, get them spayed, get them neutered, and either return them or attempt to find them loving homes. We do tend to have a demand for barn cats in our local community. And so being able to bridge the gap between some of these strays that are out there and then providing them a safe, warm environment like a barn to be able to live out the rest of their lives happily is a big part of our program. The other part is that we're able to bring these cats into the shelter and then attempt to either foster or find them um, adoptions. The TNR program is probably one of the best programs that we do within the shelter because we really get to make a difference in our local community when it comes to cats and ensuring that they are neutered and spayed feel like the pandemic has unfortunately set us back a bit. Um, But overall, compared to a lot of the other counties and what's going on in other states, we are so lucky to live in this community where people, for the most part, are responsible pet owners. They want to do the right thing. They want to support organizations like ours and yours. That's why Woods is proud to offer low-cost spay and neuter, whether it's to public or our partners like you guys, Feline Network and Paws Cause. And every now and then, some of those, what we would consider, you know, pretty feral cats uh, come in and they're all dirty and beat up and scars and they're grumpy and then they get a few little pets and then they get a few little treats and some of those cats not all some of them Mm -hmm. are definitely ready to get back out there and do their hunting and doing their jobs but we had a cat a couple months ago his name was Elvis and he was this big black and white tomcat just like huge cheeks and he came in as a feral cat he was supposed to get altered got the ear tip and he was supposed to go back out in the community but he was such a sweetheart he loved the attention he was totally not feral i think he just quickly decided like hey it's not so bad here (laughs) so we get to do that from time to time 
when those community cats come through, whether it's our North County location or our San Luis Obispo location, those are some of my favorite stories is like they've lived such a tough life. They're surviving every day out there and they get to come in thanks to the help of community partners, volunteers. And when those cats decide, hey, I think I like breakfast in bed. Hey, I think I like room service. I think I like being catered to here at Woods Humane Society. Those are some of my favorite. We had another one in North County recently. His name was Cass. He had like a tail injury. He looked like he had been through it. And he came through our program, same thing, the sweetest guy. Both Elvis and Cass got adopted recently, and they both are like living the lap of luxury now. So I absolutely love what we get to do, and we truly get to save those little lives and better their lives and also better people's lives. So um, we always talk about how people are helping the animals, but wow, do those animals turn around and help us and change our lives and make us happy when we're sad and make us laugh when we want to cry and all those things. So let's let people know how they can get involved. What should they do? How can they follow some of these awesome stories and support you guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the easiest way is to certainly follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at the Cal Poly Cat Program. We're also on Instagram, uh, Cal Poly Cat Program. And then our website, calpolycatprogram.org. I would like to just touch on a few things that related to us. We are actually in the process of moving currently. Cal Poly has um, decided to move us to a really new nice location so we are looking for certain items to help us with our move we do have a amazon wish list going right now under the cal poly cat program if you wish to donate or donate any specific items you certainly can go check that out i also just want to highlight our leadership that we have in play i mean it's really important to understand that this is a student-based program our president uh, natalie seiler and our vice president abby brown are instrumental in ensuring that the shelter runs and operates on a weekly daily basis. Um, This involves everything from what we've talked about today, from fundraising to the TNR to adoptions and everything else in between. And it's important to remember these are still students serving and working in class every day and then doing these same same services for a local community. And they're a great example of what we should be doing to give back to our local community. So I think the shout out goes to our volunteers, our community members, and most importantly, the students that dedicate their time to the shelter. I love that they're getting involved young and hopefully for the rest of their life they're going to be these animal advocates or at least look back on their couple years of helping Cal Poly cats and that's going to be some of their best memories I bet at Cal Poly. So as we wrap up here I want to share what's going on at Woods. Your local shelters are full and preparing for a busy time of year. This is a great time of year to look into fostering. It's a short-term commitment and you are quite literally saving those little lives Woods is teaming up with Petco Love's Vaccinated and Loved Initiative in honor of National Pet Vaccine Month in March. We are offering two free appointment-based vaccine clinics for publicly owned pets. These clinics will be held at our North County Clinic in Atascadero on Saturday, March 9th and March 23rd. Appointments can be made today at spayslowcounty.com and save the date for some fun ways to support Woods coming up. Woods will be guest bartending at House of Bread across from 
from the San Luis Obispo Airport on March 15th, Wine for Paws Weekend, where you can go out and drink some wine, buy some wine, and support homeless cats and dogs, will be April 20th and 21st. Check out all those events at woodshumanesociety.org. Thank you for listening to Peace, Love, and Pets on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods. Don't forget, your new best friend is waiting for you at the shelter. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman. Up next, the nonprofit story. Welcome to the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm excited today because I have some people in here doing something I absolutely love, which is playing around with books. Today we have Jackie Kenzie. She is the outreach coordinator of the San Luis Obispo Library. And we also have Karen Perry. She is the board president of the Friends of the Slow Library. And they are here today to speak to us about the big book sale that is coming up. So Jackie and Karen, welcome to the Nonprofit Story. Thank Thank you. you. Let's start with the San Luis Obispo Library. Our mission as a library system, which contains 14 branches throughout the San Luis Obispo County, our mission is to connect the community to knowledge, culture, creativity, and all through exceptional service of our staff. And the friends of the San Luis Obispo Library. Basically, our purpose is to support the Slow Library, of course, and Mm -hmm. we have two main ways that we attempt to do that. Um, So the first is fundraising on behalf of the library. So we go out and do various events throughout the year and try to raise money that we're then able to donate back to the library for their collections, programs, and services. And then the second component is advocacy of the library and the community. So basically, again, supporting the programs, uh, going out and speaking to the community, trying to make sure that the community understands all of the advantages that the library can bring. I think a lot of people historically think about the library as, you know, physical collections of books and not necessarily understanding there's Mm -hmm. digital collections. There's also programs that we do for children after school. Um, There's a lot of, you know, story times that we do for young children. And so Mm -hmm. basically, we just want the community to understand through our social media or any other ways that we can help advertise Um, all the goodness that the library brings to the community and all voices in the community. I think you have a big event coming up, the 45th anniversary book sale. Right. Uh, The Friends have existed supporting the Slow Library for 45 years. It actually started out with the assistant director of the library back in 1979, Mm -hmm. Marjorie Johnson, who did the first sale at the Vets Hall. And it's turned into uh, an annual book sale. That is our biggest fundraiser on behalf of the library every year. We sell a lot of books. We sell a lot of CDs and DVDs and and other items. We've collected all these donations from the community that they give to the library. And we then turn around and, and sell and fundraise for the library so that, again, moving forward, we can continue to provide the services um, and supplement, obviously, what the library has in their general budget to start with. You've had to close the book sale down for a while. Is that right, Jackie? How I believe they had to everything? downsize it. They uh-huh. downsized it. We mm-hmm. had sales in the lobbies, and we tried one in the community room there. But but this one is asked for year-round mm-hmm. by the community. We get phone calls from people from Southern California that want to come up just for this book sale. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a big deal. Great. And you didn't stop, though, during this period of time that you were shut down, did no, you? No, no. The friends did not stop because mm-hmm. the 
the giving kept coming in. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we had to find a way to um, alleviate some of the content that they were holding, figuring out little ways to highlight special collections and get them back into the community and, and to keep your budget and and money flowing. Mm-hmm. Trying to sell online and doing different yes, types of innovative ways to get the books to people's hands. Yeah, to the point, um, you know, we haven't been able to be at the Fetz Hall since 2020 because obviously right after our last mm-hmm. sale in that year, everything happened with COVID and then with the flooding, um, FEMA was using the Fetz Hall. So this is our return for the first time since 2020. So we are extremely excited about that. As Jackie said, we, we haven't stopped the donations from the community. So our warehouse is bursting <laughs> at the seams. We'll have about 40,000 books wow. that will be available at the sale. So we're very excited about that. And I think our volunteers are very excited as well. It's it's a great event that we put on for the community. And the community really supports us um, and gets pretty excited about the event as well. When is it going to be? It starts next <laughs> Thursday, February 29th, okay. is our preview for Friends of the Library members. Mm-hmm. If you're not a member already, you can go to our website at S-L-O-F-L-O, slowfriendsofthelibrary.org. And there's still time to buy one. Or you can purchase a membership at the door beginning at 2 o'clock that day. Mm-hmm. So the the sale runs Thursday, again, for members from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. Mm-hmm. And then it opens to the public on Friday and runs daily Friday through Sunday from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And the Friday one is for anyone in the community who wants to come, right? Yes. But Friday. The friends get first choice. <laughs> friends get first choice. That's but again, good. anybody can be a friend. And you can purchase a, a membership at the door mm-hmm. for as low as $10 mm-hmm. on Thursday. Thursday, if you want to get early access and full view of all 40,000 books that will be there. So as you prepare for the sale, tell us what type of books you are looking for to be donated. So in general, uh, if it's if it's fiction, we are looking for anything that's relatively newer. So say five years um, or less. If it's nonfiction, we sell pretty much every genre. So we go from all different types of, uh, you know, history books, U.S. history, politics. Uh, We do philosophy. We do uh, religious books. Mostly what we find is the community is donating what the community is interested in reading. So we will take any type of books. We also, in some cases, will take magazines. So at the sale this year, we actually have someone in the community that donated about 30 years of Rolling Stone magazines Mm. to us, and we'll have those on sale. It's a collection of about 300 magazines. Wow. Um, So we have all types of things that the community donates. We ask for it, obviously, to be in, you know, good enough condition that somebody will be interested in buying it. Um, In some cases, we receive some very old books, and depending on the condition, those may be higher value that we're able to sell through our eBay store. Mm -hmm. We'll also have a special area on the stage at the Vets Hall, though, where some of those collections or older material um, will be available for people to look at as well. Mm -hmm. Are there some books that you do not want to have donated? I would say in general, um, we do find that certain genres of books sell much better than others. Uh, So history is a huge one that sells. Religious and spirituality is a huge one that sells. Mm -hmm. Children's books, any type of children's books Mm -hmm. um, are are big sellers, especially when we're selling them for $1.50 an inch at the sale. So pretty good pricing. Um, Usually what's interesting is self-help, dieting. 
Um, things like that don't sell very well. I think people want books to be entertaining or um, things that they'll learn, not things that make them feel worse about themselves. <laughs> okay, good. And it sounds like the prices are going to be really good. Yes. So we are selling the books for $1.50 an inch. Um, and that is through the majority of the sale, except on Sunday, we actually reduce even further. We'll be selling items for $5 a bag or $10 a box. So you can haul away as many books as you want. That sounds fantastic. If you're just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and today I'm speaking with Jackie Kenzie. She is the Outreach Coordinator of the San Luis Obispo Library, and Karen Perry. She is the Board President of Friends of the Slow Library, and we are talking about the big book sale that is coming up in just a few days. So are you still looking for books for this sale? Not for this sale. So we've pretty much... Uh, as you can imagine, with 40,000 books, it's huh. going to be a pretty logistical hurdle um, to get everything from our warehouse where we have those boxes over to the vet's hall for the sale. So we don't need any more for this specific sale. But again, we encourage the donations to continue throughout the year. We have volunteers working at our warehouse that go through and sort the donations we get from the community. Um, and we we box them up into all the different genres of books, and mm. then we wait for a sale. You're asking for some people to come and help you out, some that can do some heavy lifting and maybe help getting things uh, organized. Tell us about some of the volunteer help you could use. So I think for the most part, as you just mentioned, our, our greatest need is still the heavy lifters. So those 40,000 books uh, equal about 1,100 boxes that wow, we're going to be moving. <laughs> so it is a pretty big undertaking. Mm -hmm. So if there are any heavy lifters out there, and we define heavy lifters in terms of book boxes as you know an average of 35 pounds that you'd be lifting, anybody who can help us out on Thursday morning, or if you can help us out on Monday morning, mm -hmm. uh, March 4th, as we're breaking down from the sale, we welcome the help. Just reach out to us again um, at our website, Slow Friends of the Library, and we can try to see if we can slot you in with a shift. In general, though, if you're not able to help out at the sale, we're always looking for volunteers. Again, throughout the year, we're going through and sorting books and boxing them up, and we welcome any help with that. I know the library itself also appreciates in-library volunteers. Um, so in general, just if you if you have time and you're passionate about the library as we are, we're always looking for people to help. We have a bookstore that's at the library on the first floor as well that anybody can come in anytime the library is open and look for any books that are available there. And you mentioned earlier, we also have an eBay store, so we sell books online to a U.S.-based audience. Um, so mm -hmm. we are constantly looking for ways to help raise money. And Jackie, tell us a little bit about how the sale actually helps the library. Well, the sale itself helps boost many different areas that we spend money on at the Slow Library. Mm -hmm. Most often, it's the physical content, the digital content, all, all the ebooks that mm. people enjoy, all the music they can download, uh, newspapers, physical downloads. Those are all subscriptions that are pretty darn expensive for a library of our size to mm -hmm. maintain. Mm -hmm. um, also, another big event that they participate in is the summer reading program. So I know last year we had an amazing summer reading program. I think people still talk about our, our new logo with the quail and the t-shirts mm -hmm. and the bags. It's programs mm -hmm. and hosts and 
entertainers that we're able to bring in to not just the San Luis Library, but to all our branches throughout the county. So tell us a little bit about that interaction that the library is making actually in the community. What kind of specific programs do you have? We have uh, passport services. Most of the staff at our three largest branches, San Luis, Atascadero, and Oro Grande are passport agents. So we're able to accept passports and get them submitted for community members that need to update or get a new passport. We also make regular visits to schools to do summer reading program promotions as well as uh, story times to preschools, the state preschools. Sometimes we go out and do events at some of our lower income neighborhoods. We recently went out with our new outreach van, the big blue vans you might see driving around town, to a a lower income community to do a um, beginning of school celebration for them Mm -hmm. and get their kids library cards too while we're out there. So that sounds great. Now, yeah. So who is helping <laughs> to actually go out there to the community and work with the students and everyone else? That would be our, our librarians. Okay. We have our children's librarians, mm-hmm. our teen librarians and our adult services librarians. They all go out as as well as myself and other coordinators. Karen, tell us a little bit more about the Friends. Basically, the Friends is a fully volunteer service organization. We are a 501c3 uh, fundraising on behalf of the Slow Library. Mm -hmm. So any net profits that we have or net proceeds that we have from the book sale, because again, you know, any event that you're going to hold is going to have some costs. We try to keep those very minimal, though, as much as we can. And then any of the, the net proceeds that we get go back to helping support the library. When I was the slow librarian, you did help us enhance some things in the library, such as a mural that was done in the teen space that is absolutely loved, and we look forward to maybe doing another one at some point in time. And also the money helps us get beautiful, expensive displays in the library, such as photographs from nationally known artists and photographers. And then recently we had some author talks that were just wonderful. Jennifer Ackerman, who presented her book, Genius of Birds, is nationally known. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some part of whatever you gave to us also helps us for those specific events at San Luis Library. Uh, Do you have a specific uh, financial goal you're trying to meet with this sale? So I would say our last sale in 2020, uh, our net proceeds were about $17,000 that we were able to give to the library. We're hoping this year that we are able to raise over $20,000. Again, we'll see how well we do, but it will be our biggest sale ever because we do have those four years of books that were backed up and in the warehouse. So... Um, I would say, though, that, you know, we always have an account as well. Um, So we're doing fundraising throughout the year. For this year, the library, we were able to give them $26,000 as a donation Mm -hmm. that they were able to use in the most effective way that they could to promote uh, and meet their mission. We would love to be able to give the library that much or more for the next fiscal year. That'll start in July. Um, And as I said, this event at the Vets Hall will be the main fundraiser that we have, not the only fundraiser, but the main one. So we're really hoping that we're able to maximize that and get over $20,000 of that money that we'll be able to donate to the library this year. You find that it's surprising that with all of the electronic ways of accessing information and books that people are still interested in physical books? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we see that 
a lot just in our door counts that go up too. I mean, we've had, we've reached 10,000 a month, people walking in the doors Mm -hmm. just at San Luis Obispo. So we hope that number keeps going up to pre-COVID times, but um, a lot of people are using the downloadable material from their home. Mm -hmm. However, you still have to come into one of our libraries to get a physical library card to uh, continue that use. Uh, you know, a lot of it is is parents bringing the children in, Children's so the children programs, really yeah. get excited by going to the library. And I've actually seen, um, you know, some studies that have said some of the Gen Z and uh, teens and young adults like that are actually moving back more to wanting the physical books versus the digital content. So I think over the years, <laughs> the library has always been able to shift and meet the needs of the community, which, whichever way they want to read. And basically, we are just about reading. So is there anything else you want to let us know about this? And again, you want to give us the information on when, where, and everything else? The sale will be at the Slow Vets Hall. It's at 801 Grand in Slow. Uh, it begins on Thursday, February 29th, members-only day. But please come out and buy a membership and show your support for the library, and you'll get early access to all the, the content that will be on sale. And I think that's only about $10 for membership. It's as low as $10. That's great. Um, we will be happy to take more if you want to give us more. <laughs> but $10 gets you in the door. And that sale goes on from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Thursday the 29th. And then we open to the general public on Friday through Sunday, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. daily. Jackie, is there anything else you want to add? Check our website at slowlibrary.org to view our events page, our services page, um, and to search the catalog. Karen Perry, the board president of the Friends of the San Luis Obispo Library, and Jackie Kinsey, the outreach coordinator for the San Luis Obispo Library. This is Dr. Consuelo Mutes with the nonprofit story. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, Playing with Food. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Everyone loves pasta, lots of different shapes, very versatile. You can have it with olive oil and chili flakes or an elaborate sauce that takes days. It's made from two simple ingredients, flour and water, and then the water simply vanishes, leaving dried pasta. Or maybe you prefer egg pasta or homemade pasta or fresh pasta. Which is the best? There are certainly many and strong opinions on social media. So the Playing With Food team met up with two Central Coast pasta makers, one commercial and one in-house restaurant, and we made some delicious discoveries starting at Eto Pasta Factory in Paso Robles. Brian Terizzi and I make pasta. Pasta is an ancient historical thing. It's a very simple process. We use a single ingredient, organic durum semolina flour, and pure water. Typically, dried pasta is made without egg. It almost doesn't matter. I mean, when you're making dried pasta, which is what we do here at Eto, the hydration could be egg, water, spinach juice, tomato juice, but the flavor and the difference in the pasta really isn't much. Traditionally, it's just flour and water. There's no allergen, which people have egg allergies. It's pure, it's single ingredient. And then in our little pasta factory, the cleanup is very easy. When we dry the pasta, the water that we put into the pasta actually is removed through the drying process. So it's just a transformative thing, adding the water. It's not something that remains in the final product. It's almost like a magical thing. You're taking a single ingredient of flour, but you're transforming it into 
a food that you cook and eat. When we make our dried pasta, we do what's called extrusion. So we're pushing the paste, it's kind of the moist flour through a plate using tons of pressure. And that pressure creates strength of the gluten and the fibers. And that's what holds it together so well. So going back those thousands of years, was pasta invented by Italians? Well, so, you know, this is the huge debate. You know, I have some Chinese friends, and of course they say that Marco Polo discovered pasta in China. That's been pretty much debunked. I mean, there is evidence that there were noodles and kind of long pasta maybe that looks like spaghetti or fettuccine prior to the Italians doing that. From my research and talking to people who know more than I do, it seems like pasta was really something that was carried along the spice route maybe through the Middle East. You know, it was this kind of mixture of flour and water that would be put into sheets that could then travel by camel or whatever through the desert and then could be rehydrated and turned into something that was edible. There's evidence the Etruscans, which were the ancient people of Tuscany, made some stuff that was very similar to kind of modern day lasagnas. Most pasta from Italy, they believe, was more in a sheet form, not the shapes you see today and spaghetti and that type of thing. I don't think the mystery's been completely solved. Let's go see the flower and okay. then I'll ask you my questions. It might be a little loud, so okay. we'll, we'll speak up. You're going to hear some machines in action in here. Oh, perfect. So now we're on the floor of the pasta factory. And so in here, we have a multitude of equipment to make pasta. We have our pasta dryers. You can probably hear one in the background. That is actually running a program that takes the moisture out of the pasta. Depending on the shape of the pasta and the ambient conditions, we adjust the program so that it helps the pasta dry better. And so right now it's pausing for a little bit, switch directions, change the fan speed and keep going. So we do this at a a very low temperature. So modern commercial pasta is dried at higher temperatures. The problem with that is you lose a lot of the nutritional value, you lose a lot of the aromas and flavors. The dryers are quite loud, the contrast is quite a bit. So are they kind of like walk-in ovens? Yeah, in a way. They're, they look like walk-in refrigerators that you see maybe in the back of a restaurant. But there's fans inside and you program it from the outside. Usually has to dry for about 12 to 14 hours, sometimes 16 hours, and then we're good to go. It gets a lot quieter when the second stage goes off. Yes, for <laughs> sure. Okay, what's this big, tall escalator looking thing? So this is actually the piece of equipment that we use for packing the pasta. In the beginning, we packed everything completely by hand, which is fine, but it took a lot of time. So this is kind of our next step in speeding up our packing production. Oh, there goes the dryer again. You hear that? <laughs> See, it gets, yeah. it gets loud. It starts and stops. So we've brought as much automation as we can just to help us be more efficient. What shape is that in there? This is trombe. trombe. This is actually a whole wheat pasta that we specifically make for public schools. And this is probably going to go down to Laguna Middle School for San Luis Coastal School District. So here we have three different pasta machines. We have a small machine, and that's the first machine we started with here at Eto, And we still use it today for a lot of our restaurant partners. So we make pasta for probably 40 to 50 restaurants. So the small machine works great for that, but it's difficult when we have to dry a big batch of pasta. And then we have a medium sized machine and that was kind of the next step to get our dryers working a little bit faster. Our newest machine is quite a bit bigger 
And the beauty of it is it's much more automated. So it takes a lot of the kind of slower hand processes out of it, but it also allows us much more consistency. Instead of hand weighing every single batch of flour and water, which can create some error, and mixing in smaller batches, we create a continuous cycle. So the pasta that comes out is very consistent. And it's actually good. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, well, small production is better. In a lot of cases, that's true. But actually, when you're making pasta, this is very, very small production, but much bigger than we've done before, but it's much more efficient. It's much more consistent. It's really improved our quality and consistency across the board. And that's really important when we're selling to grocery stores. They want us to have a certain level of consistency. Same with the schools. We want our pasta to look great, taste great. Can we have a look at that machine a little of closer? Of course, yeah. There's a hopper, so a big receptacle that we dump our bags of flour in, and we use organic Durham semolina, all grown in the United States. It goes through a tube, which we program the rate in, and kind of goes into an initial chamber. And then you see this blue curvy tube coming from the ceiling. That's actually filtered water, so we take local water, we use reverse osmosis, filter it, very pure. There is a claim in Italy that the water in the top pasta regions is part of the beauty of their pasta. Well, in the time I spent there, pretty much every place I went was just pulling water straight out of the tap. So purifying the water is important because there's no impurities, there's no sulfur compounds that get into it. So the water and the flour are programmed. They mix in this top chamber. Once it's mixed for 15, 20 minutes, it drops into the next chamber and that's where the extrusion happens. So that's where the pasta gets pushed with the high pressure through those plates, kind of like the Play-Doh machine. And then there's a little knife that cuts the pasta to the length you want. The great thing about this is while the second chamber is going, the first chamber is starting again. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian in a pasta factory in Paso Robles. Eto is a large operation, but it's not super huge like the pasta you get from the supermarket. How is the process different when the pasta is made in the restaurant? So I went to the public market in San Luis Obispo to get a different perspective. We begin our conversation walking from the restaurant to the basement, so the background noise changes as we talk. My name is Mason. I am a restaurant owner, operator of Humble Oven Food and Company. Your primary thing is pizza, but you also do pasta? Yeah, I would say they're both primary, to be honest. We make our pizza dough, we also make our pasta dough. Pasta is a lot easier, in my opinion, because we have a big machine that does it for us, and it's weighed out, and we just put it in, and we just watch it. This is our machine. Essentially, we're going to fill this up with the pasta flour, 100% semolina, and then some water, and then we just crank it up, and then we extrude it out of there, which will bring it upstairs and get all situated. So you mentioned that you put in the semolina and the water. We did experiment with other type of semolinas that are a lot more refined and lighter. And then we found that just 100% durum, the more rough grain was always the better one. Um, it held the best and you can cook it with higher heat and it stayed longer for our um, pastas to travel because we're quick service. So we found that the semolina just really holds nice and strong and it's got a nice al dente flavor. Do you ever use egg? No, couple reasons. Less issues with storage. We can keep it fresh, not have to worry about as much shelf life. 
Number two is we want to be able to have vegan options for everybody. Is your pasta cooked fresh or is it dried? It's mostly dried. We need to prep up a lot of it and we'll keep it in the refrigerator to slow down the drying process so we can cook it faster. But at the end of the day, we need to make sure we have the product and we don't run out. So drying it is going to help it be more shelf stable. So if you just keep it wet, essentially, for a longer amount of time, that's when it starts to expire on you. But once it dries, you can keep it in your pantry for months. Okay, great. Well, let's see how this is done. So we have our recipe book here and the pasta recipe is extremely simple, but it, it took a lot of tweaking. You know, it wasn't this easy in the beginning because it changes. Somebody could have one recipe, but with humidity and everything and how big the batch is is different. So what are we making today? We're making fusilli. So like little spirals is what we tell people when they're like, what's fusilli? See, this is actually an edit that we did here. We were using two different semolinas, but we found that just going with 100% Durham is a lot more strong and we love the flavor a lot more too. So that's your total number right there, 3,524 grams. When you do extruded pasta from fresh handmade with egg is you kind of need to let it like rest a little bit longer. You got to roll it out, get a lot more moisturized. Extruder pasta needs to be very, very grainy, like to the point where you're like, there's no way that's going to make pasta. Why is that? Because of the pressure in here. It compresses it so much that it ends up pounding it super like together and then it just pushes it through here. I mean, I can't give you the exact why, but I can tell you when we've done it more moisturized, the pasta comes out almost like a Play-Doh and it will look like pasta, but then over time, whenever it wants to dry, it will like smash. And then also when you cook it, it'll come more apart. So this is the dye, sorry. I just... So is that kind of like the pasta pooper? Yes, it's where you drop the kids off at the pool. <laughs> That's the blade. And so I'm just making sure it's going along the die. You actually don't really want it pushing too much against it because then when it cuts the pasta, it smashes it, then clogs it, and then makes you start having one pasta noodle that wants to kind of come out looking all funky and deformed. You wanna feel it? It feels like sand. Yeah, it feels like sand. You wouldn't think it was gonna be able to make pasta. You know, it's super dry. That was actually the information we got from the gentleman who sold us the machine. He's like, yeah, you're gonna want it kind of like grainy sand. Cool. So I'll turn it on here. Oh, how cute. Yeah. So see, these ones aren't looking too hot right now. And you kind of go through this phase in the beginning where it's gonna come out super fast and then it's gonna slow down. So you kind of sit right here and you find your size you want which these are honestly kind of perfect, kind of hit it on the money. And that's based on the speed of the slicer. Yep, faster it goes, the smaller your pasta is gonna be. Super important to kind of keep shaking and moving it around. This is for the drying factor. You put your hand in there and feel it. You can feel the temperature of it, it's like warm. Very simple flavor, tastes like pasta. Tastes like pasta. I think this is my favorite noodle. I think it just goes well with everything. Cause the reason why you get rigatoni is cause you get sauce in the center. But to me, like this pasta, like really holds all of the sauce really well. And if you put like big chunks of meat, it stays on top. When you do like tagliatelle, the long noodle, you get stuff that just falls to the bottom. It's fun to eat, it's more nostalgic, but I think the fusilli is the, the winner. How many different shapes of pasta do you make? We do three. We do fusilli, rigatoni, and tagliatelle. You said you serve 20 to 30 a day. You're yep. open seven days a week. Six days a week. Six days a week. So how often do you make pasta? Gosh, I would say for sure two times a week. I would say we go through about 50 
pounds of semolina flour within a week, week and a half. It's not a lot if you compare it to these big monster restaurants, but for us, that's a, that's a big deal. It's really cool to see how our pasta wasn't the thing to go for in the beginning. Now there's sometimes we're selling more pastas and pizzas, which is awesome. It's because we make our own pasta in house. We make all of our own sauces. We try to do scratch made and you really can't find places around here to get pasta at a quick service under 10 minutes. You know, we try to have our pastas ready to be served in seven minutes. You can see right here. So something's going on with one of the dyes. Is that unservable? No, no, we still serve it. Like that's why we're called humble oven is it really doesn't matter how it looks at the end of the day, it's how it tastes. And that's gonna taste just as good as all that. And it's gonna eat just as easy, so. Nobody's bought back a bowl of pasta for a misshapen piece. No. Could you imagine? Actually, I could imagine. <laughs> that's looking better. Yeah, it's only one of them. There's like four or five holes. It's only one hole that's doing it. So we're, you know, like 80%, so that's good here so see how it's all like oh you can hear it well see how it's still like clumped a little bit right there so that's why you got to move it around but it already sounds different it sounds yeah. drier yep cool so that's pretty much it it's the basis of it simple okay. this one batch we would probably get about 45 orders of pasta out of this maybe 60 because we do about 150 grams of pasta which is big yeah that's dried. Yeah, it's usually about 200 grams of pasta after it's cooked. That's a third of a pound. That's right. I'm such a glutton that I think whenever you order something from a place, you shouldn't be hungry after, as far as a meal. And also too, like everybody loves leftovers. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian and I'm learning how to make pasta. Mason at Humble Oven in San Luis Obispo makes about 150 portions of pasta a week for his pizza and pasta joint in the public market. He, like the commercial pasta venture Eto, focused on dried pasta, but isn't fresh pasta far superior? Here's Brian's response at Eto. People say that fresh pasta is better than dried pasta. That's the perception, and I could shoot myself in the foot here because we sell a, a ton of fresh pasta at Eto. I much more often eat dried pasta. The benefits of dried pasta cooked al dente are remarkable. It's low in sugar, low glycemic. It breaks down slowly in your body. It's a complex carbohydrate, high in protein, that should give you, even being active, 36 hours of energy. Fresh pasta, you mentioned hydration. I mean, you're buying a product that has that hydration, but if you cook both the fresh and the dried for a long period of time, they would be identical. There is something really luxurious about a nice bowl of fresh pasta. It's nice and soft and silky and the starch from the water, it creates this wonderful texture. But great dried pasta is really wonderful and it doesn't get the credit it deserves, in my opinion. Um, okay. People who have never been to Italy say that Italians don't eat dried pasta. False. The other thing I noticed in Italy was something that I saw on either your label or a sign in the store that said it should be firm but not crunchy. And the pasta in Italy is almost crunchy. Yeah, it depends where you are. So the first time I was outside of Gregnano, which is the most famous pasta town in Italy, if not the entire world, I could not believe how hard the pasta was. It was too hard for me, but that was the native culture, and it's probably better for you. To me, if it sticks to your teeth, it's overcooked. And I try to get the perfect al dente, which means to the tooth, it has great mouthfeel, 
but doesn't stick to your teeth, no crunch. But, but if I'm a little too crunchy, I'll still eat it, but my wife and kids will not. And I think most people would prefer it a little less al dente. The way to make the perfect al dente pasta is to cook the pasta at the lowest end of the instructions. So we give a range like seven to nine minutes. So cook it to seven minutes, but then add the pasta directly to the sauce, mix it in the sauce, add some pasta water, keep mixing, give it another minute or so, taste it, and you can nail it. You can get it perfect every single time. That's how to do it. When we were on the tour of the factory, Brian mentioned that Eto makes pasta for local schools. I wanted to know more. My first customer was my kid's Montessori school. There are two reasons for that. One is, you know, I wanted to serve kids our pasta and get feedback. And the other is kids love pasta. We got our kids on board and shortly after that started talking to some of the public schools and we hooked up with San Luis Coastal. There's a woman down there, Erin Primer. Who has been on Playing With Food, by the way. Who's amazing. And she heard about us and we started the conversation. So we started making pasta for her and we had to change our formula a little bit. So public schools need to use a whole wheat flour. It adds a little bit of fiber to the pasta, but the kids definitely prefer ours to what they were using before, which is a huge national company. We just were up in Monterey delivering some pasta to a school and the cook said, your stuff doesn't fall apart like the old stuff we used to use. It always baffles me how much better our pasta performs than these giant companies. And it really makes me feel good. It makes me very hopeful. I think we're probably in 12 public school districts now, and we've actually made some pasta for some consultants that consult with schools down in Los Angeles. We've had folks reach out to us from down in Orange County, San Diego area. It's kind of remarkable how much interest there is in what we're doing. And what makes me really happy is the folks working in these programs, how much they care about high quality school lunches. We went to a conference in Santa Barbara County I mean, there are school lunch administrators from all over the state, and they're incredibly passionate about school lunch. And it's all about cognitive abilities and childhood obesity, and they really care. The passion is enormous, and it's something we're very happy to participate in. Pasta makes you feel good and satisfied, and that just makes you feel better to know that they're making pasta for the kids. I'm going to make myself a big bowl of pasta right now. Pasta is so much more than flour and water. What I took away from watching Brian and Mason was that pasta, the way they make it, has a lot of chemistry and physics involved in transforming a bit of flour into something everyone loves. So yes, I am going to make myself a big bowl of pasta right now. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.